Let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray, please, by your spirit, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, this morning we surveyed some of God's speech in the Christian Old Testament. I took Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 as our guide. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. That was this morning. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. That's what we'll be looking at tonight, the astounding Christian claim. Not just that the one true living God speaks, but that he has spoken uniquely, climactically, and clearly in the man Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's not something that Christians have made up. It actually goes back to a claim made by Jesus himself. Let's start then tonight with the passage that we had read for us just a moment ago from John chapter 10. You got your Bible there? You'll need it tonight. We're going to stay in John's gospel tonight. Uh, But if you can open John chapter 10, verse 22 to 29. In that passage, Jesus makes an astounding claim, a claim that very nearly gets him killed. You have to remember, Jesus was a Jew. He lived in a Jewish community and culture, and the Jews are fiercely monotheistic. They believe there is only one true living God, the Lord, Yahweh. And so when Jesus said there, if you've got it there, John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one, they understood him to be claiming to be God in their midst, to be equal with God. You can see it there by the reaction in verse 33 there. They were going to stone him to death for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, if it were you, you would probably at that point go, no, 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 I'm not claiming to be God. No, don't stone me. No. Jesus actually doesn't pull them up. He doesn't say, hey, no, that's not what I meant. He doesn't say that you've misunderstood me. He really is claiming to be God in their midst. Now, it is not a simplistic identification where Jesus and the Father are both one and the same thing. Rather, there's a distinction here within their unity. They are Father and Son. So Jesus says there in verse 30, I and the Father are one, but also verse 38. The Father is in me and I am in the Father, which seems to maintain their distinction even while expressing their unity. Now, this equality with God was not a one-off claim made by Jesus. John records for us a number of places and ways in which Jesus reiterated the same claim. For example, if we look at Jesus' claim for the status and power of his words in John chapter 12. Click to John 12, verse 44 to 50. Uh, This passage comes... Just pause... Uh, This passage comes as a bit of a climax to the first half of John's Gospel. Listen to what Jesus says about the status of his words. We pick it up in verse 47. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. 
For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word I have spoken will serve as judge. On the final day, when each of us here front up to give an account of our lives to God, Jesus says that it will be his word that will be the measuring stick against which all of humanity will be judged. The issue will not be, have you gone to church? Have you given away your money? Have you made something of your life? The issue will be, how have you responded to Jesus' words? According to Jesus, that will be the issue on which your eternal future depends. How can he make such a claim? Well, Jesus continues there in verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. So Jesus has come to save the world, but his words will also judge the word world. Why? Because his words are the words of the Father. Those who hold on to Jesus' words and believe in him will receive eternal life, but those who reject his words will be judged and condemned by those words on that final day because how you respond to Jesus ultimately is how you respond to God the Father himself. That's a very exalted status, isn't it, for Jesus' words. They are the very words of the Father. Jesus says very similar things in the third passage from John's Gospel, this time John 14, 6 to 11. Listen to Jesus' interaction with Philip, starting in verse 8 of chapter 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. So all that Jesus says and does is the Father's work in and through him. So if you've seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. Not in terms of what God the Father might look like because God the Father is not made of created stuff like you and me. He doesn't look like anything. No, he's talking about in terms of his character. Who God the Father is. When you see and hear Jesus, you see and hear the Father. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because Jesus the Son is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. They are one. 
But the extra piece of information in this passage comes in verses 6 to 7, which I just conveniently skipped over. Back to verse 6 there in chapter 14. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the only way that you can have access to God the Father. So if you do know Jesus, then yes, you will know the Father also. But apart from Jesus, you have no access to the Father. Jesus alone is the way to God, the truth about God. He alone is the life that's found in and from God. I mean, that's an astounding claim to make. Not just, oh, by the way, I have access to God. No, Jesus is saying, I am the way, the only way to God. I am the truth, the only comparable source of truth about God. I am the life, the only source of the life found in and from God. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, at this point, I'd well understand if you were sitting there and saying to yourself, frankly, that just sounds completely unbelievable. How could you possibly know that that sort of claim is true, that Jesus really is one with the Father? Well, I think it's a fair question. I mean, usually if someone claims to be God, if they claim to be the only one who can provide true access to God, because they themselves are God, well, that is certifiably crazy. You would say they were mad, and you would give them a very wide berth, and I would support you in that. Jesus appreciates he's making a big call. From halfway through verse 10 again, the Father who dwells in me, he says, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. The miracles that Jesus did are meant to be the evidence of his unity with the Father. And John in his gospel records a whole range of miraculous works that Jesus did in order to provide that evidence that Jesus was one with the Father. The greatest miracle or work that John records that points to Jesus' identity is Jesus' resurrection from the grave three days after he was crucified. And John goes to quite some length at the end of his gospel to record the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. The empty tomb, the resurrection appearances of Jesus, including the evidence that Jesus gave the disciples that he really was alive again from the grave. So when we say, Jesus, why should we believe you? Jesus points to the miraculous works that the Father did through him, including his astounding resurrection from the grave. A resurrection after three days, having been crucified by the Romans, that's pretty amazing. That is a pretty good evidence, especially when Jesus had foretold that that was going to happen, no matter how crazy, which is what he does in John chapter 2. So on the basis of his resurrection, we can say, yes, Jesus' claim to oneness with the Father is not without good basis. 
we can take Jesus as telling the truth when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But then the implications of what Jesus is saying here are far-reaching, and they're incredibly politically incorrect. Because that means that when it comes to knowing God, if you really want to know the one true living God, believing in Jesus is both necessary and sufficient. Believing in Jesus is necessary because no one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus is right on this, then any other religion, any other faith system, that claims to give you the truth about God, it is a lie. Because Jesus is one with the Father. Remember, he's not claiming merely to be the only person who knows the path to God. He's claiming to be one with the Father. And so it is just not possible to have the Father without accepting the Son. Believing in the Son is necessary if you're going to know the Father. But believing in Jesus is also sufficient. You don't need more than Jesus if you want to know the Father. What did Jesus say? If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. If you want to know God, if you want to know what he is like, if you want to hear God speak, then you do not need to go past Jesus. You do not need Muhammad. You do not need Joseph Smith or any other so-called prophet. Jesus is completely sufficient because he and the Father are one. Well, all of this leads to an astounding conclusion about who Jesus is, which John puts up front in his gospel in an opening summary in John chapter 1, verses 8, 1 to 18. I've likened it previously, when you read John 1, 1 to 18, it's like the magnificent overture at the beginning of a symphony. That probably doesn't speak to you because you've probably never even listened to a symphony in your whole life. Anyway, it's a summary, which you probably understand. What we get from John chapter 1, which I want us to look at, is Jesus is not just another prophet of the one true God. Jesus is not just someone with a particularly inspired insight into God. Nor is he just the the person who happens to know the secret pathway to God. No, Jesus is more than all of those things. Jesus is God, the eternal Son, come amongst us as a human being. So if you turn to John 1, John starts out in verse 1 by talking about the Word. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice there you've got distinction within unity. The Word who was with God, but also was God. Just like we heard Jesus talking about his relationship with the Father. Then comes verse 3. All things came into being through him, this Word. And without him, not one thing came into being. Do you remember Genesis 1 from this morning? 
How does God create the universe? By speaking. He said. He speaks a word. He creates with words. What has come into being in him, John writes, was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. What if you picked up the absolute outrageous nature of what John has just narrated for you? The entire cosmos has come into being through this word. And then somehow, which he's yet to tell us how, the word comes to his own, presumably I think that means God's people since the word was God, he comes to his own people But even his own people will not accept him. It's a terrible, tragic story. But fortunately, not all is lost. Not at all. Look at verse 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. So some, in this summary, do believe in the Word and they are granted the privilege of becoming children of God. And then John summarizes his summary, if you like, in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who's made him known. And so this is John's conclusion about who Jesus is. Jesus is this divine word who became flesh and lived among them. He's God's climactic revelation. No one's ever seen God. Even Moses only saw the back of God's glory. But Jesus, God the Son, who is one with the Father, has made this God known. That's the astounding truth of who Jesus is. God The eternal Son of the Father become man. He is the unique God in flesh. He's the supreme self-revelation of God. Now, you might have noticed then tonight that I've chosen to stick in John's Gospel. Not for any particular reason, but just because I thought it was a good thing to do. But this astounding conclusion about who Jesus is, that He is God amongst us, it is not unique to John's Gospel. It's the consistent testimony of the New Testament. 
as you can see from the passages I've listed there on your page. You might like to chase some of those up later if you like. Now we have to be a little bit careful here as we try to put together what exactly the Bible means when we say that Jesus is God incarnate or God in human flesh. You can see I've got a little diagram there on your page, page 17. I know you love the pictures. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is God become a human being? What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, we are not saying that God just appeared as a human, sort of like a divine dress-ups. You know, when my kids were little, they used to love to play dress-ups. They would pretend they are some fairy princess. I don't know, from some Disney movie that I never bothered to watch. I love my children, but, you know, you can only take so much. Was my daughter actually a fairy princess? No, just dress-ups. Maybe that's what God did with Jesus. He just sort of, he stayed God and just sort of appeared, like put on a human sort of cloak around him. And he just played dress-ups. A bit like uh, King Henry V in Shakespeare's plays, right? Who dressed himself up just as a regular person so he could wander around through his troops on the eve of battle. Maybe that's sort of like what God did. No. Jesus was not 100% God, but only a little bit human. Now, the book of Hebrews makes clear that it is vital that God the Son became 100% human, just like you and me, except without sin. If he didn't do that, then our salvation from sin would not be effective. So it's vital that he became 100% human. So let's get rid of this heresy in a bit of a digital firestorm. Did it work? Briefly. Oh, well. We're also not clearly saying, or we're clearly not saying, rather, that Jesus was just some sort of regular guy wandering around Palestine who just happened to have really great ideas about God. We're not saying he's 100% human with just some cool insights about the divine. That's not what we're saying when we're saying God became a human being. He's not just some clever person wandering around. We don't like that one either. Oh, that's a bit better. But we're also not saying that Jesus was some other sort of third thing. Not fully God and not fully human. He's not some sort of angel, which is what the picture on the left is meant to be. You know, they're his wings, apparently. Nor, nor was Jesus a human body, but with some sort of God mind, you know, a Godhead. Because those things are not 100% human, and neither are they 100% God. So that's not what we're talking about either when we talk about Jesus and the Incarnation. What we do mean is that God the Son, who is 100% God, becomes 100% human being with all the limitations and the frailties that come from being human. It took the early Christians quite a while to sort out how Jesus could be both 100% human and 100% God, 
And they had a lot of theological biffo along the way to work it out. And this was part of the way it was resolved. It's there on page 17 from the Council of uh, Chalcedon in AD 451. This was their statement to sort of try to capture it. They said, following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us truly God and truly man. One and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis or substance. Truly God, truly man. In two natures, 100% human and 100% divine, but occurring together in one person with the properties of each nature being preserved. Well, what's the upshot of all of this? What's the cash value? Well, this is, without exaggeration, absolutely life-changing. God, the eternal word, did not take on flesh just for something to do. This was a purposeful, purposeful incarnation. God took on flesh in Jesus so that we might have both light and life. A reminder there on your page of what it said in John 1.4, in him the word was life and the life was the light of all people. Light is a metaphor, I think, for revelation. God took on flesh so that we might know with greater clarity who God is and what he is like. But even more than just light, God took on flesh in Jesus so that we might have life. Now, you may be saying, thanks very much, Jesus, but I'm already alive, in case you haven't noticed. What need do I have for life? Well, the life that Jesus gives is not mere physical existence. It's eternal life. It's life in relationship with God the Father through God the Son, a relationship that starts today and extends into all eternity. This is the life, as the Apostle Paul puts it elsewhere in the New Testament, that he says, this is the life that, that really is life, eternal life, life in loving relationship with God as your Heavenly Father, as a reborn child of God. That sort of life is available to anyone who puts their faith, their trust in Jesus. And that's why God, the eternal Son, became a man. Why he took on all the limitations and frailties of being a human being, like you or me. Why? So that you and I, and all people in all places and times, could have the light and the life that are found only in him. Okay, so we've explored the fact that the one true living God has spoken uniquely and climactically in the person of his son Jesus. But what I want us to do now is dig a bit further into the content of what God the Father actually says through Jesus. So over the page, on page 18, let's explore the words of the Father heard through his son Jesus. 
Okay, a little bit of a personal quick pop quiz for you. Do you remember from this morning the shape to God's speech that we saw in our survey of the Old Testament? We said when God speaks, He speaks words of life and power, grace and truth, warning and judgment, comfort and hope. And in so doing, He shows Himself to be the one full of authority, righteousness and love. If someone could turn that into a rap for me, I will do it for you. Okay? But then you will have to do it too. But I just think we need, we need to remember that, okay? What you see in Jesus, this is a key point, right? Don't get distracted by the rap opportunity, okay? What you see in Jesus is that same speech of God and the same character of God revealed. The way we're going to see this is by surveying seven famous sayings of Jesus that are recorded in John's Gospel that all start with Jesus saying, I am fill in the blank. You can see them all there on your page. Now, most of these metaphors that Jesus uses in his I am sayings, they have a rich history in the Old Testament. Jesus picks up images and themes from the Old Testament and states that he, now, as the word become flesh, is the true reality to which those images and experiences pointed. So, for example, first one there from John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, meaning the bread that gives life. Jesus referring to an amazing experience the Israelites had in the wilderness, in the 40 years it took them to get from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of Moses. What happened in those 40 years was that the one true living God fed them miraculously each day with a bread-like substance which they called manna. And manna should be said like with a screwed up face, manna, because manna means what is it? That's true. They did, they did, what's that? And so they called it, what's that? Except... To say that in Hebrew, it's manna. And so they, they ate, what's that, for 40 years. in, And it kept them alive. It was bread of life for them from heaven every day. Well, what does Jesus say here? He says, you thought manna was pretty special? That's nothing compared to me. Listen to what he says in John 6, 47 to 51. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. They ate manna in the desert, miraculous it was, but ultimately, eventually, they all died. Manna couldn't keep them alive forever. But you eat this bread, says Jesus, namely me, and you will live forever. Now, it's clear from verse 47 there, he's not actually talking about eating a little bit of Jesus. 
here's his pinky, here's his appendix, like you eat a bit of Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying, right? Verse 47, he says, whoever believes has eternal life. The metaphor of eating is really about believing in Jesus. But the power of Jesus' words is that those who believe in him, who entrust themselves to his words, they will live forever. You see, Jesus' words are full of life and power. But we see this in some other of his I am statements as well, uh, particularly in John 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, the context here is that Jesus is going to the funeral of a friend, a terrible, tragic event. His friend Lazarus has died. In fact, by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And in the midst of an incredibly sad occasion, filled with mourners, Jesus says some truly remarkable things. Have a look there in John chapter 11, starting at verse 21. Martha, Lazarus' sister, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is claiming to be the key to the future resurrection of all those who followed the one true living God. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. That's a pretty big call. But then to show that he has the authority to make such a claim, Jesus does something unexpected and astounding. He rocks up to Lazarus's tomb, and he tells them to remove the stone that closes off the entrance. I'll pick up the account from uh, verse 39 of John 11. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and his feet 
bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, there's the evidence that Jesus speaks words of life and power, that he speaks as one full of authority. And so we can believe Jesus' words of comfort and hope when he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. Because if you haven't worked it out yet, death is your great enemy. The great curse of God that we've brought on ourselves because of our sin and our refusal to let God be God and to treat him as God and to listen to his words as the words of God. But now in Jesus' words, there is comfort and hope for all of us facing our inevitable death. Even though we die, we can live if we entrust ourselves to Jesus and his words. But how is Jesus able to offer such life to us? If death is what we deserve under the just judgment of God for our sin and our rebellion against God, how come Jesus can just offer us life from the grave? How come he can do that? Well, go back to what Jesus said in the Bread of Life passage, actually. John 6, verse 51. He said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's a reference to Jesus' death. He gives up his body in death on the cross so that the world may enjoy the life it doesn't deserve. Well, you can see it again if you move to the I am the good shepherd passage in John 10, verses 11 to 18. This is how Jesus puts it in John 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who willingly gives up his own life so that his sheep can live. What shepherd would do that? What shepherd, if you I mean, imagine for a moment, you finally get a job, you, Sydney University degree, you become a shepherd. Well, what else do you do after you've studied philosophy? Um, yeah, you, you, you boo and hiss, but you know it's true. Um, you're a shepherd. There are your sheep. The sheep come under attack. Maybe from a wild animal. Maybe from a thief, from a robber. Someone's coming to take your sheep. What, what shepherd would, would go, I will die so my sheep will live? Only a shepherd full of love, right? Only a shepherd, when we're talking about people, only a shepherd full of love would do that. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Still in that same passage in John 10, verse 17 and 18, for this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. In order to take it up again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from the Father. Jesus doesn't give up his life for us because it's wrestled from him. It was never taken from him against his will. 
He voluntarily gave up his life, taking the death that we deserved, taking the punishment, yes, for our sins that was our due, bearing God's curse in our place. He did it so we can live. He chose to do it. That's what it means to be full of love, full of love and authority. Authority that gets exercised by Jesus choosing to lay down his life for us as our good shepherd. And that's words of grace as well, isn't it? Like undeserved kindness there, expressed to us, giving us precisely what we didn't deserve and stepping into the condemned place where we alone deserve to be. Well, just how good is this life then that Jesus offers? Have a look at the I am the gate for the sheep passage. John chapter 10, verses 7 to 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So how is the life described that Jesus secures for us? It's having life to the full, or some translations say to have life abundantly. Life as it is really meant to be lived and experienced. This is life to the brim. And since Jesus goes straight on and talks about his relationship with the sheep as the good shepherd who knows the sheep and whom the sheep know, You get a picture here that life to the full really is about life in a knowing relationship with Jesus and his heavenly Father. That's what life to the full is. Jesus knows you and you know him in the same way that Jesus knows the Father and the Father knows Jesus. That's what life to the full looks like. You thought life to the full was going on nice fancy trips overseas on the university holidays, getting a good job with a nice car and a nice husband or wife and a few kids. That's what you thought life to the full was. Because that's what our world thinks, right? Life to the full is knowing the one true living God, knowing that He is your loving Heavenly Father and that you have been reborn as his child through faith in Christ. That's life to the full. And Jesus is the only one who can offer you that sort of abundant life. As Jesus says in verse 8, anyone else who claims to be able to give that sort of life, they are actually, in Jesus' words, thieves and robbers. Or as we saw in John 14 a bit earlier tonight, when we looked at the other, uh, another I am saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can offer this relationship with the Father because only Jesus is one with the Father. So here we have words of comfort and hope from Jesus. You can know the Father. You can have life to the full. It's found in accepting Jesus, accepting His words. But it's also we've seen words of truth. All others are thieves and robbers. Only Jesus is the truth from God. So that's some of the wonderful promises on offer in the words of Jesus. But notice he also has words of warning and judgment. In the I am the light of the world passage, 
in John 8, 12 to 30. Jesus makes very clear the consequences of ignoring his words and of refusing to believe in him. In John 8, 23 and 24, I'll just read it to you. Jesus speaks to those who won't believe in him. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. If you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the word become flesh, friend, you will die in your sins with only the awful judgment of God to await. Or jump across to the I am the true vine passage, John 15, 1 to 8. Again, Jesus outlines the consequences of refusing to accept his word. I'm reading from verse 1 of chapter 15. Jesus says, and some of these scary words, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that we'll be even more fruitful. And Jump down to verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. To remain in Jesus the vine is to be someone who takes in Jesus' words and seeks to live by them. The fruit we bear is the product of Jesus' words in our life. If we choose to reject Jesus' words, if we choose to not remain in him, then we will be cut off, thrown away, destroyed. Those are words of divine warning and judgment. So you can see, just by that survey, that Jesus speaks the same words as the Father. He speaks words of life and power of grace and truth, of warning and judgment, and of comfort and hope. And in so doing, he reveals that he, as God, the Word, the Son amongst us, is the one who's full of authority, righteousness, and love. And it's no surprise, is it, that he speaks the same words as the Father, since he and the Father are one. So let's wrap it up. On the opposite page, page 19, I have a passage there from John 5, where Jesus himself, I think, summarizes much of what we've been talking about tonight. Let me, let me read this to you. John 5, starting at verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whosoever He wishes. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming 
and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You've heard tonight how the one true living God has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus. You've heard of the life and the power, the grace and the truth, the comfort and the hope that's there in him as the word in human flesh. So three questions for you. Will you listen to Jesus? Will you listen to him as the word made flesh, the only son of the Father, the one who's come from the Father and made him known? Will you accept that this is who Jesus is, that he's the only way, the truth and the life when it comes to really knowing God? And will you then listen to him? Secondly, will you accept Jesus' words? As Jesus said there in verse 24, will you hear his word and believe the Father who sent him? Because the only way to receive eternal life, the only way to become a child of God, to pass from death to life, is through him. The blessings of accepting Jesus' words are life as it's meant to be lived, eternal life in relationship with God as his child, and he as your father. It's the promise of life beyond the grave. It's the promise of your sins forgiven. But we've heard too that the consequences of rejecting Jesus' words are extreme. There's no other word for it. They are extreme. You will be the branch that is thrown away. You will die in your sin as Jesus' word stands as your judge on that final day. Will you accept Jesus' words and entrust yourself and your life to him? Finally, what will be your experience on that last day? You know what Jesus said there, right? All who are in their graves will hear his voice. When Jesus returns, you will hear his voice. He will say, come out. Will you rise on that day as one of those who's lived, who've lived their lives rejecting the words of Jesus and so rise on that day to what Jesus calls a resurrection of condemnation? Facing the wrath of God for our sins? Or will you rise as one who, in mercy and grace, has accepted his words with trust and obedience? And will you rise to the resurrection of life? We will all hear God speak in the voice of Jesus on that day. We will all hear him say, 
come out. And like the universe at creation, we will have no option but to fall into line. You will not be able to say, sorry, Jesus, come back later. You will rise. But will it be, tragically, to condemnation? Or will it be what God wants it to be, to eternal life? with the Father and the Son. How you respond to Jesus' words in the here and now is what will determine how you experience his voice on that day. I'm going to pause and give you a moment to reflect on what we've heard about the Lord Jesus tonight. Maybe you'd like to jot a few things down. I'd like you to consider how you've responded to Jesus' words. And whether you have come to him in faith. I'm going to give you a moment to think about those things. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Uh, But at the end of tonight's session, if you'd like to respond, if there's something that you would like to pray about to the Lord Jesus, maybe you realize that you haven't come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and there's something you'd like to do, then I would invite you at the end of tonight's session to come down to the front over here on the left. There'll be a number of EU staff there who'd love to just pray with you. And we'd love to help you make that response in repentance and faith. Or maybe there's just some other matter that you'd like to commit to God in prayer. Please come and the staff would love to pray with you after, straight after tonight's session. But let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, Father, so much that you've not left us in the dark, but in your great love and mercy, you sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might have light and life in his name. Grant us, please, Father, by your Spirit, soft hearts, that we might put all of our trust in him, not just now, but every day, until we hear him call us from the grave and rise to everlasting life with you. Amen.